This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. But first, Health Minister Adrian Dix joins us after the weekend's key announcement about a new system for greenlighting internationally trained family doctors. A very good morning to Health Minister Adrian Dix. Good morning, Bruce. How are you? I'm doing very well. And, uh, you know, it's nice to have a chance to talk with you as usual and again. Right on, right on. Let's get let's get to it. Well, let's get to it indeed. Um, hey, it looks like uh, the pandemic really did expose a bit of a challenge in getting family doctors, one that probably did exist for a long time. But now we have a solution. Uh, this licensing uh, going to be, um, g- guess, given the green light and many more coming in. Explain what this is, this announcement over the weekend. Well, we need a series of measures um, to address issues in healthcare across the healthcare system, and we've taken a series of measures this weekend. It's a real focus for Premier Eby to make it easier for people who are qualified to be doctors, especially family doctors, uh, to be able to come and work in British Columbia at a time when we uh, need family doctors. So we made four key changes in yesterday's announcement by Premier Eby. The first was to triple, which is a huge imp- improvement what's called the PRABC program, the Practice Ready Assessment uh, Program in BC. Usually we take in 32 internationally trained and educated doctors under that program. Often they went to rural and remote communities. We're going to triple that over two years to 96. So increase the numbers involved in those programs. And that will also increase the different communities that can benefit from the program because the first three years are a return of service, meaning they have the doctors have to go to a particular place. Often that was a rural and remote community, but now it may be as as well an urban community. Secondly, we created a category called associate physicians. Some doctors who are trained internationally don't uh, meet in terms of education, uh, Canadian standards at the moment, but they can still work and contribute in healthcare under the supervision of a doctor and then work on that training uh, gap uh, while they're working in the field. And so we created, we've created that category of associate physicians. Thirdly, we've made it easier for people to start the qualification process while they're still in their home countries, which is a real source and an impediment to people coming here often. And fourthly, for U.S. doctors, many of whom want to come and work in the Canadian healthcare system, we've, uh, we've uh, lowered the burden on them coming in three year, uh, with three years of training to come and work in teams in British Columbia. So those are four changes. In addition, of course, to our fundamental reform of family practice and uh, of health care that we, we did with the doctors a few months ago. In addition to the 128 spaces at the UBC Medical School, which we've added uh, a few months ago, we announced our health human resources plan. In addition to our new-to-practice contracts, which have been successful in the present right now, we've gone from about 20 to 25 a year to 86 this year. All of these are part of a broad effort on family doctors. We're doing similar things, of course, with nurses and other health professionals. 
You're coming pretty close to uh, hinting at something that uh, may be taking place this afternoon. Big announcement at SFU at 1 o'clock. Exactly. It, it's going to be fun. I, it's one I've been wait, looking forward to uh, for a long time. So uh, there'll be more today. But uh, but yesterday's announcement was significant in that I think one of the challenges we face is um, is ensuring that we maintain standards while not using those standards as an impediment for people who can come in here and contribute. We have thousands now, right now in B.C., of internationally trained doctors who do an excellent job. Many of your listeners have a, a doctor who's trained internationally in the United States, and Europe, and Asia, and Africa, and other jurisdictions. Well, um, we, need, uh, we need to reduce the impediments while maintaining standards, and I think that's the balance we struck uh, yesterday. We talked about uh, maintaining standards. I know in the past, uh, one of the things that was the other side of the argument when this question came up was uh, we have to make sure international doctors meet a certain standard. So is this uh, compromising standards? Uh, How do we know? Uh, It's not. In fact, the Practice Ready Assessment uh, Program has worked in B.C. We've had 32 a year. It's worked in B.C. Overwhelmingly, people who come enter those programs have long-term careers in, uh, in medicine and family medicine in our province. So I think it's a model that works. In that case, we're expanding it, but maintaining the standards. Part of that is ensuring that, um, of that program is ensuring that standards are maintained. Uh, the changes we made, um, several of the changes we made were in concert with the College of Physicians and Surgeons. What you've got to look at when we're asking people to come to Canada and work in needed parts of our economy whether it's healthcare or anything else, is uh, is not putting in measures that appear on the surface to be higher standards, but are in fact simply impediments. And I think what we see is strong support in the community of uh, of doctors, of healthcare workers, to have people come in and work side by side with them who are qualified. And I think um, that's the balance you have to strike. But I think along with the College of Physicians and Surgeons who were there yesterday, the doctors of BC who were standing with us yesterday, I think We've struck that balance very well. We're talking with Health Minister Adrian Dix about the big announcement yesterday, uh, a pathway of sorts to allowing more uh, licensing for internationally trained doctors. Uh, Mr. Dix, uh, let's break it down right for the average uh, family. Uh, Information that they really want to know. When are they going to see some change so that they actually can be confident that they'll get the uh, family doctor and the the visits they need when they do need them. When's it all going to change for them? These changes are happening now. As you know, it takes quite a long time to train a doctor. If we were starting doctors from the beginning, it would take years and years. But these changes, uh, you're going to see both immediate effect and then long-term effect. And we need both, right? Immediate effect, um, the agreement we announced with doctors fundamentally changes the way we, uh, we pay and remunerate doctors and also um, puts, it, puts at the center of that the interests of patients. Doctors are voting on that now, and uh, I believe uh, we'll hear the results of that vote uh, on or around December the 6th. And then that, uh, that agreement will be implemented and in place. That will give people, as we implement that agreement, uh, more opportunities, for example, to identify themselves as needing a family doctor and having sort of one-stop shopping to get one. That's important. And it fundamentally will stabilize our, our, our teams of family practice. So that's happening now. The, practice, the um, new-to-practice contracts uh, 
those new doctors are working in the system now. And what we said in that was in advance of the agreement with doctors, we were going to not lose a year and we're going to make sure that those who wanted to practice family medicine in the community, meaning taking uh, patients and and serving them over a period of time, that we're going to emphasize that. And those doctors are working in the community now. It's a huge change and a huge improvement. 86 contracts signed. When you consider that each doctor takes more than 1,000 patients in the patient panel when they're working in family practice, that's a lot of people that benefit. When we talk about that, 86 doesn't seem like a lot. It's a lot of people who will benefit from that. Sure. When, um, and so all of these changes are happening now. Some of these changes, the new training spaces, say UBC, will take a number of years to take effect. But we need that too, uh, I would argue, Bruce. We're going to have twice as many people over 75 in 10 years. People are coming to BC because it's the best place in Canada to live. And we have an economy that's been the best in Canada uh, over the last period. Uh, and so all of those people who come here are going to need service. So we need, we need immediate action now. And you see that. And we need a very strong action to build for the future. And that's what I say, you know, with, with the greatest of respect, the previous government didn't do. Uh, you'll recall uh, Kevin Falcon announced everyone would have a family doctor in 2009, but everyone would have a family doctor by 2013. Not only did they not achieve that, not only did it get way worse, but they abandoned the program they announced. I think we need a long-term approach as well as immediate action. And that's what we saw yesterday and have seen over the last number of months. When you talk about family medicine, uh, there are two different ends, obviously, of the uh, demographic ends. Um, but the one that's uh, received a lot of uh, headlines in the last couple of weeks in the scuttlebutt uh, around what's happening is involved BC Children's and even the Children's uh, ER at Surrey Memorial. Uh, when it comes to those ER pressures for children, is this the kind of move that will alleviate this in the future so we don't see those nine-hour waits that we heard about in the last couple of weeks? Well, as you know, um, we're in the respiratory illness season. And while COVID-19, it affected everybody, it affected children, but it affected adults to a far greater degree than children, as we know. We've been in this pandemic, and we're still in this pandemic. Right? For, for, uh, we've been in it for two and a half years. To put it in context, there are about 340 people in the hospital day with positive tests for COVID-19. That's about the size, you know, you know Victoria a bit, of Victoria General Hospital, just with COVID-19 right now. In addition to that, what's different this year, is the return of influenza, which affects children and older adults significantly. So in September, we announced our plans to address what we knew and what we expected to be a lot more patients in our hospitals. So we've taken some steps to do that, including opening up long-term care beds and other steps to create more space in the hospital. Do we really think that... um... It's absolutely a challenge. Sure. You've got a lot more patients coming in at any given time on any given day. And you've got to de- deal with those in the emergency room. We've also taken some steps at BC Children's to address that s- situation, to add new capacity to our emergency rooms and new supports in our emergency rooms. And we have the largest vaccination program in BC history. And if I can say anything, all the parents listening, vaccinate, get your children vaccinated against influenza and COVID-19, but influenza right now. About 55 to 60 percent of seniors are vaccinated against influenza, about 20 percent of children. And we need that number of children to be higher. We do need those doctors. Are we really going to see uh, doctors from the states wanting to come up and practice in British Columbia? 
or from anywhere else in the world? Why not, uh, if you're a doctor wanting to set up practice, go to the States and make more money? Well, because we've got a better healthcare system in Canada, significantly. Uh, doctors uh, like practicing here. We've just shown our priority for family medicine in particular by the changes that we've worked out with our doctors in BC, which I think in themselves will attract people here. The Canadian healthcare system for many people in the United States is a source of inspiration. It may not feel that for us all the time, but when you compare the performance of our healthcare system in BC with the performance of American healthcare systems or even other provinces during the COVID-19 pandemic, you'll see why people want to work here. Now, there are real challenges here. And, um, and the people who have worked as doctors and nurses and health sciences professionals, we've been in pandemic here for two and a half years. It has been brutal this two and a half years for people working in the system. And I'm so proud and honored to work with them, our doctors and our nurses and our health sciences professionals. But yes, I think people will want to come and work in British Columbia and live in British Columbia. It's a fantastic place to be. And so we believe they will come and we know that there are people interested that, but you know, you can't um, recruit people if the pathways are too difficult, if the bureaucracies and waits are too long. Right. You can't you can't give people that opportunity. So this will test some of that out, of course, and see people are prepared to come. But we, we think people are going to come here um, from the United States, including some Canadians who work in Canada, but in the United States, but also Americans will be interested in coming to British Columbia and working here. And uh, and uh, that's why we've made it. Uh, we've made the pathways easier so they don't have to deal with as much. Uh, delay in in the assessment process. And on that note, thank you so much for your time, Adrian Dix, Health Minister of BC. Appreciate it. Hey, anytime, Bruce. Take care. eh? You know, many families are still expressing a bit of a relief right now because the BC government changed its mind on a very serious topic. It's nixing its plans to scrap the individualized funding for kids with autism. This came after an outcry from some parents and explaining this and joining us now is Julia Boyle, the executive director of Autism BC. Julia, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, for those of us who may not be up to speed with all the details, what was the original announcement that really had parents very concerned So about a year ago, in October of last year, the Ministry of Children and Family Development announced that it would be phasing out uh, individual autism funding in 2025 and transitioning uh, kids with support needs into what what they were calling family connection centres. These family connection centres, there'd be about 40 of them across the province, and children with support needs, uh, kids on the autism spectrum or with Down syndrome, ADHD, they would be accessing services through these uh, government-run uh, hubs. So uh, it was a, a, a bit of a shock when the announcement was made last year, and families were really concerned about losing that direct uh, autism funding and, and ultimately losing the service providers that you know many families have been working with for years and had, you know, having a lot of success with their their kids. Now, that was then, and this is now, uh, a bit of a change in uh, in this. Uh, and it comes after uh, an outcry. But uh, is there going to be consultation? Because from everything I'm seeing here, it seemed like that was the ingredient that was missing, especially when it came to uh, parents of those uh, on the spectrum. 
Absolutely. I think everyone felt like this decision came out of the blue. Uh, the decision last year at least came out of the blue. And, uh, you know, we felt like the, the new service system wasn't being co-developed and co-created with families, with organizations, with, uh, you know, experts in the province. So uh, definitely it seems as though this, uh, you know, under the new leadership of, of Premier Eby, there's an interest in, in doing consultation in a new way, and I'm hoping that it will be a more meaningful style of collaboration so that we can, um, you know, continue to build on and improve and add new supports to the services for kids with support needs. Okay, so up until last year, families of children with autism uh, would have had uh, $22,000 a year until the age of six and then about, uh, what, $6,000 up until the age of 18. How would that money be used? What's what's the system there? Uh, So... If you get a if you have a child that is diagnosed with autism, then essentially you have direct access to that money uh, to purchase um, and and create develop supports for your child. And essentially, it's uh, the family, the parents who have the agency to decide, you know, what types of therapies, what types of uh, products or supports their their children need, and to find the service providers, which are the occupational therapists or the speech-language pathologists or the behavior analysts to work directly with their children. So that was, last year it was announced that that would be phased out. But as of Friday last week, uh, Premier Eby and Minister Dean have said that they will not be phasing out that funding, funding and families will continue to have access to that. So they won't have to go through this government uh, hub that I just described. And those uh, hubs, 40 of them uh, across the province, the the intention there was, uh, from your understanding, was it to standardize care or uh, deal with some sort of challenge? What was the thinking? Uh, like, uh, there are a lot of challenges with the direct autism funding um, and the, the current children and youth with support needs framework. Um, you know, it's definitely it has its inequities. There are kids that are left behind in the current system. And right now with the, the wait for assessment. So to get an autism assessment, a publicly funded autism assessment right now, you're waiting a year and a half to two and a half years. So kids are not able to access supports until they get a diagnosis. So the the idea behind the Family Connection Centers was that, you know, kids could get supports right away and they wouldn't have to wait for a diagnosis. And I agree with that. I, I think that kids shouldn't have to wait, you know, for in the life of a two-year-old, two and a half years is a really long time. And, and during that time, you know, kids aren't able to get the early intervention and supports that they need. So... You know, that aspect of the Family Connection Centers, I agree with. I don't think that supports should be locked behind a diagnosis. And, of course, there are, um, you know, other disabilities like FASD where accessing a diagnosis can be particularly challenging. There's a lot of stigma related to FASD that might prevent a family from, you know, getting a diagnosis. And, and ultimately, we don't have uh, a perfect assessment and diag- diagnostic system here in BC. So, um, and the the intention of the Family Connection Centers, I think, partially was that, um, but just the the design of the the new service model just wasn't coming together in a way that gave families that confidence and trust that their kids would get what they needed. 
We're talking with Julia Boyle, Executive Director of Autism BC. Uh, the provincial government scrapping its plan, which would have created 40 hubs, but uh, nixed, uh, nixed the idea of uh, giving funding directly to parents. Uh, so that's all being reversed, and uh, we still have that. But, Julia, now we still have this challenge from what I'm hearing from you. We're getting a diagnosis, whether it's for autism or whether it's for ADHD, is still very, um, I shouldn't say it's difficult because you can get it, but it takes a long time. And that's uh, the main problem. Where where are we going in that direction if we don't have the hubs? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, um, you know, one of the priority topics for us to be talking with Premier EB and talking with the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Children and Family Development over the coming weeks and months. Um, we recently released a survey um, on Monday of last week, where we surveyed 1,563 parents of kids on the autism spectrum, and 85% of them said that a diagnosis was necessary for their children's growth and development. So families want that diagnosis, and, and with the individualized autism funding, they need it to be able to access services. Uh, so we need to see more of an investment in, in this invest assessment process. Um, we need to be lowering the wait time, you know, to a minimum or sorry, maximum of three months. Um, it's not OK that kids are waiting a year and a half, two years, you know, in some cases, three years for a diagnosis. And some kids just never get one. They're just never able to get a diagnosis. Um, so it's it's tragic, to be honest with you, uh, to see that our system is falling further and further behind. And we absolutely need to do something about it. Do you have any meetings set up uh, with the new premier or uh, with the health minister? Uh, we will be meeting and consulting. Um, I know that in the in the press release that went out on Friday, um, Premier E B announced that there would be new investments for kids that are you know falling behind and or not being uh, serviced adequately under the current system. So. Uh, we were, we were, it was a rush and kind of a whirlwind uh, on Friday, but uh, it is my intention to reach out and start scheduling some, some new meetings uh, soon, as well as with the First Nations Leadership Council, who was, um, you know, a key advocate in this change as well. Right. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us and uh, all the best uh, with those meetings ahead. Thank you very much. Here's Claggett in for Mike Smith. And uh, boy, you know, it was uh, Black Friday on Friday, a chance to go out shopping for the holidays and also pick up something for yourself. And lots of people did that, but others make more of today, Cyber Monday, the day where you get to do all of that and possibly do it again, but this time online. Well, it's a chance at times to uh, get the latest gadgets or the latest thing that uh, you really want in your life or don't even need. I don't know. Uh, for me, it's usually a gadget time. Andy Brar is joining, joining us now, our technology and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Andy, good morning. And I know that uh, you're a guy that's always looking at some of these uh, gadgets in the latest before we even talk about what's happening with Cyber Monday today. Got to ask you, what orders have you put in for yourself? 
Well, Bruce, I'm uh, I'm doing the opposite. You know, with rising inflation, I'm trying to hold back. And it's hard because I have to tell all the people about these great gadgets. So I'm just buying stuff from my mom this year. Um, she's been texting me. She doesn't have an Amazon account. So she keeps telling me, I'll, I'll send you money, but please buy this and buy that. So I'll be spending money uh, for her this, uh, oh, this year. Oh, from the heart and following through with this promise. That's great to hear. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I was thinking, Bruce, you know, with the World Cup and Cyber Monday, this has got to be one of the most least productive days of work, you know, globally. <laughs> you know, people are probably really distracted with so much going on. Now, if you were to take a look and uh, not be so giving as you are, and of course, we know that uh, you've got that big heart, that Andy heart. But um, if you were to get yourself something that uh, you think is really cool out there, what are you looking at? What are the big tech gadgets that really excite you right now? Well, this year, Bruce, I wanted to look at gadgets just because of the inflation. I, I don't want people to buy stuff they don't need with money they don't have. But I wanted to find gadgets that would actually make a difference in people's lives. And the first one, for anyone that has an iPhone, you have to listen to this because everyone that has an iPhone always runs out of storage. And Apple wants you to get more iCloud storage and pay for more. But there's a gadget, it's from SanDisk, and it's called the iExpand flash drive. It's very much like a typical thumb drive that you would put in your laptop, except on one side, it has a lightning port. And you connect this to your iPhone or your iPad, and you download an app. And what you can do is you take all your photos and videos and any big files, and you move it onto this little flash drive. Then you take it out and you connect it to your laptop and you literally drag it onto your laptop. You can put it onto an external hard drive. But with this gadget, you don't have to get additional cloud storage. If you just want to keep those photos and those videos, you want to store them on a hard drive. This is the simplest way to do it. And I have a link on my website because I know every time I talk about this, people want to buy it. Go to my website, handyandymedia.com. Go to the blog section and you'll see these Cyber Monday deals. And that's right on the top. You know, I'm an early adopter when it comes to Apple products. I'm a big Apple fan uh, myself. And uh, so much so that the original iPad I had, uh, and I still claim myself to be the first person to actually have an iPad in Vancouver among the first because I had to wait for two or three months before they actually had SIM cards available to put in and data plans for it. I went down to the States to buy it on the first day that they were available. Um, So that's, uh, and I held on to that one iPad for years and then gave it to my son. Um, But uh, that's, you know, the kind of guy I am. And on my wrist right now is also the original Apple Watch. Wow. And I'm not a guy that actually goes and starts buying on Cyber Monday necessarily, but I did actually this year decide to update my Apple Watch. Not that there's anything wrong with the original, the very first one, but uh, yeah, I went to the Apple, uh, the version 8. Eight versions later, eh? So that's that's my story. (laughs) That's uh, I, I love to see when people hold on to tech and not just you know quickly upgrade because you want to get the most value out of it and you certainly did with that Apple Watch and it's still on my wrist and it's still working right now and uh, you know I just uh, for me it was uh, the ability to actually go swimming with uh, with a Apple Watch. Uh, what else are you looking at? Okay, so this is the last gadget that I bought, and I had to buy it for a reason. You know, it's getting cold outside. A lot of people are noticing that mice are coming into their house. 
Bruce, I don't know if you know this, but I had some bread on my countertop and I kept noticing this hole. And after about the third loaf, I was like, something's up. So I got a, a wi indoor Wi-Fi smart camera and it has motion detection and night vision. And I set it up on my counter and I went to bed. Next morning, I wake up and sure enough, there's a little mouse eating my bread. And I used this camera and I kept putting it underneath my kitchen cabinet to try to track where this mouse was coming in. And so I found one on, and it's on my website. It only cost $28. It's from TP-Link. And the one that I use was from Amazon. Uh, it's called the Blink Mini. However, that one has a subscription. So after 30 days, you have to pay for subscriptions to watch and store the videos in the cloud. This one from TP-Link, it has a SD card that slot where you can put your own SD card so you don't have to pay for a subscription. And it's only $28. So if you have a mouse in, or you suspect you have a mouse in your house, for $28, you can set this up and then you can watch it and, and then locate where that hole is. And if anybody wants to see it, I have a video on my website. I found the hole, Bruce. It was behind my dishwasher where the power cable comes in. That's where the mouse was coming in. And I wouldn't have been able to determine that had I not had one of these smart indoor Wi-Fi cameras. Uh, great application. I don't even think these manufacturers ever thought of that. But a uh, really handy trick if you do suspect that you have mice coming into your house. You know, the other thing, uh, there must be so many applications uh, for that when they think of a small camera. Uh, how big is it? Oh, you can sit in the palm of your hand. It's very, very small. I almost wonder if that's something you could put on uh, a cat collar. I've always wanted to see what my cat sees in the course of a day when nobody's around, when it goes roaming. Yeah, well, you could probably put a GoPro would be a better one for that one. And then you can get a, a, a beautiful cat cam. This one, because it uses Wi-Fi, if the cat's running around too fast, it's mostly supposed to be stationary. Um, uh. But I have to say, you know, a lot of people use this to, to check in on their pets, when they're at work, if you and they have two way audio, they have a microphone and a speaker. So you can actually talk to your pets if you really want to trip them out and they can hear you, but they can't see you. Um, or or if you have like contractors coming into your house, you're worried you want to kind of make sure they're not going into a certain room. You kind of set this up and you get that peace of mind. But like I like I experience, it's great for catching mice coming into your house as well. Well, this really it, to me, it sounds like it's a bug. That's uh, the traditional bug, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of funny. You know, we, we used to always talk about like how the mafia, they would try to bug your, you know, the, the clubhouse. And now we all have all these gadgets, smart speakers and, and whatnot to, to do that ourselves. But, uh, you know, HD footage, I, it was it was funny. to It was every morning I'm drinking my coffee, watching this mouse. I couldn't do anything else, Bruce. I couldn't work. I, I, my whole focus was I got to find this hole. And with this camera, I was able to determine that it was coming from behind my dishwasher. So highly recommend for $28, way cheaper than an exterminator. So I highly recommend it. Black Monday or not Black Monday, but Cyber Monday. Indeed, there's a gift uh, or just something for yourself for the gadget oriented. Before you go, uh, Andy, got to ask you, uh, I know that uh, the Consumer Electronics Show, we often talk about this, you and I, even when we're not on radio, about uh, what's going to be new this year down at CES in Las Vegas. I know you're going down again this year. What are you looking forward to? Well, I'm just looking forward to going back, Bruce. It's been two years because of the pandemic. They did have a, a live in-person event last year, but I didn't think it was safe to go. So I expect this year to be huge because a lot of people want to get back. In 2019, the last year that I went, it was 175,000 people 
came to Las Vegas for one week for this show. Uh, so I expect to probably hit over 200,000 this year. And uh, yeah, I'll be there. So I'll be reporting on the latest gadgets. That's where we really kind of see where the industry is headed. Um, but I don't think they're going to be talking about crypto a lot no. <laughs> this year because uh, we are definitely in a cold, cold crypto winter. So those, those discussions are probably p- being put on hold. And you are looking forward to it. Cyber Monday talking about that. Of course, tomorrow is Giving Tuesday, and we do have Pledge Day here at CKNW. But Andy, thanks. A pleasure as always. Thanks, Bruce. And this is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith today. You know, the U.S. government is planning to take a look at some options to reintroduce grizzlies in the North Cascades. And, of course, if you know your geography, the North Cascade's not too far from our own border. And this could mean that there are more of the Bruins heading into the mountainous area in and around the Fraser Valley and the Similkameen all the way through to the Okanagan. You see, earlier this month, the U.S. National Park Service announced it would examine some of the possibilities to restore grizzlies in the North Cascades, uh, 25,000 square kilometer ecosystem that abuts right up to the Skagit Valley and Manning Park. And, uh, you know, it really uh, is an area where wildlife goes one way and the other. Got to ask the question, but first, let's welcome BC Wildlife Scientist Clayton Lamb. How are you, Clayton? Yeah, real good. Thanks for having me on today. Well, excuse the alliteration, and great to have you on, but uh, do bears abide by BC's borders? No, not at all. I mean, we have bears that go across the international Canada-U.S. border and across provincial boundaries as well. And, I mean, even in some cases across the sea, of course, to Vancouver Island. So, I mean, they, yeah, they're a wide-ranging species that cover a lot of ground. Now, for me and my understanding, uh, this has always been an area around Mount Baker, right through to Manning Park and everything. You can find a lot of bears, but they're they're black bears. Do we have any grizzlies in the area, Is or is that uh, somewhere else? There are some grizzly bears in the to the east of Chilliwack and south of Hope type area, kind of Manning Park area. But, you know, these the grizzly bears are pretty far and few between. They're sort of on the order of five or ten or maybe two. We don't really know. Very few animals. And they're just detected very occasionally. They might even just be dispersers moving through. So we don't really think there's a, a very solid population there at all, if any. What do grizzlies like? Why are we seeing uh, more of them up north and fewer of them in uh, places like Washington State and our own south coast area? I mean, grizzly bears are a, they're a wide-ranging species that generally keep to themselves in the in the best-case scenario. But they are like um, you know all bears; they are very food-motivated, and especially in the fall, can be uh, quite conflict-prone as they work to uh, gather up their fat stores for a long winter. And so, you know, there's lots of landscapes across British Columbia and Alberta where people and grizzly bears successfully coexist to some degree there's obviously some conflicts and challenges with living with bears but there are lots of places where grizzly bears and people overlap and it works in in some way but you know i think in in this case there would obviously be a little bit more of a sort of grizzly bear naive population of people and, and ranchers that these bears would be exposed to so what is the provincial government's uh, stance on this uh is our province okay with uh, what's happening with the U.S. government in Washington state? Are we part of this? 
You know, I I think that uh, conversation has been been evolving. I mean, I I can't speak for what exactly the province of BC's current stance is, but as far as I understand, the BC was going to be the source population of that reintroduction at at some point, especially given that we could benefit in some ways, so to say, at least from a, a grizzly bear occurrence perspective, that those bears would probably range across to BC and help fill a hole and an extirpated population of ours too. So. Yeah, I think BC was planned to be the donor, but I think there's a lot of kind of moving pieces. And I don't think we'll know until those bears are actually moved, if, if it will happen and where those bears will come from. These decisions can be changed the night of at times. Sure, sure can. You talk about uh, benefit from it. Uh, I know the benefit for me is just the idea of grizzlies uh, closer to home. Kind of cool for me. I, I think that's just uh, kind of amazing. But uh, what are the benefits uh, when we talk about uh, the ecosystem or are there challenges? How does it work in? Yeah, I think there's, there is a cost benefit going on there. I think one big one is what you highlighted. Like, I mean, the idea of having grizzly bears on the landscape is, is a positive thing for a lot of people. I mean, they are... Uh, an iconic species, they make uh, British Columbia what it is in a lot of ways. We have on the order of 10,000 to 15,000 grizzly bears in the province, and it's you know what makes BC a special place. And grizzly bears fill a number of ecological roles. I mean, they move salmon out of streams and um, uh, nurture trees, and they you know dig up ground up in the mountain, and they um, they're an important predator in some systems, and so. You know, they do a lot of ecological things, but they fill a lot of important cultural roles for um, Indigenous peoples and settlers alike. And so those are the pauses of having uh, grizzly bears on the landscape. And then there are some, you could call them negatives or challenges, and those are often um, issues that are borne by the people that uh, have to live amongst these bears. So the people, often rural people that live up against these mountains that the bears are living in or would be reintroduced into. And there can be some fairly severe conflicts that can arise, especially uh, around livestock, whether it's small chicken coops or your garden or an apple tree and all the way through to big ranching operations. So there are some legitimate concerns, and we just want to make sure that we would support those people with the tools they need to coexist with bears, like electric fencing and education, and make sure that that landscape can work for people and bears. We're talking with Clayton Lamb, a BC wildlife scientist, uh, about this plan from the U.S. Uh, federal government, but taking place in Washington state, where there may be a reintroduction of grizzlies in the Cascades. And of course, the Cascades uh, bordering up against uh, Manning Park and uh, the bears could actually end up traveling anywhere from the Fraser Valley right through to the Okanagan and beyond. Um when I think of uh, the bears, the, the downside to me, the most obvious downside, and you mentioned a couple others, but for those of us who like to go hiking or camping into the wilderness, would grizzlies make it a whole lot more dangerous or any more dangerous than uh, the fear of black bears to begin with? I mean, it's not as if black bears don't pose a threat to people either. I mean, I think that obviously the uh, the challenge with grizzly bears, the risk from grizzly bears does feel higher. And in some cases it can be, but there's a number of black bear attacks that occur as well. So, you know, I think that what would likely happen is if we established a abundant enough population of grizzly bears, they often suppress the population of black bears because they do kind of compete for the same food. And grizzly bears will actually kill black bears in a lot of cases. And we've had collared bears do that. And so, 
you know, is kind of a, a balance there. As you increase the risk of grizzly bears, the black bear risk will probably simultaneously decrease. And I don't know what the, the net risk will actually end up being, but I, I would say that there are hundreds of thousands of people that coexist and recreate safely with grizzly bears across British Columbia and Alaska and Alberta every year. I mean, I live in Southeast BC in a thriving um, recreational town outside Fernie. And I mean, we have thousands of people that are mountain biking and hiking and fishing and doing what they do very safely. And it's just about getting the, the tools and the education in the hands of those people. So bear spray and keeping your head up and yeah, I think I think we can do it. Where do we stand right now in the province with uh, with hunting in bears? Uh, we still allow that, don't we? Only black bears and only certain parts of the province. The the grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia has been banned since 2017. And that's uh, because it's a trophy hunt more than anything else, isn't it? The grizzly hunt? That's correct. Yeah, it was banned sort of based on um, presumed public perception that um, the people of BC did not support the hunt. It wasn't really related to the sustainability of the hunt. So with the grizzlies possibly coming into uh, our province now, what is it that you expect in the next few years? Would you uh, think that this is something that's going to take a hold uh, or would they simply die off and not be in here? Well, if the population in the North Cascades that they introduced took off, then yes, certainly they will come across to BC. Um, I think it's a question of whether that reintroduction, one, happens, because it has been on and, and off a couple times, and if it's successful. So the plan, as far as I understand it, is to introduce three to seven bears a year, up to about 25 bears total, and they would like to see an eventual population of about 200 bears in, say, 50 years, or something like that. And yeah, if we had the order of 200 bears, then, yeah, I mean, we definitely see them on our side. Um, but there's another future, too, that those bears could be reintroduced and they could wander down into the lowlands of Bellingham or eastern Washington and they could get killed in, in conflict and that it may never be viable. So I think it's, it, it depends whether those bears take hold successfully and that will kind of be dictated by how much we can support those bears in that landscape and the people that butt up against the North Cascades if they can safely coexist with those bears. Interesting to see, and uh, I never thought the day would come where grizzlies might actually be something uh, within a, a drive of, uh, an hour's drive of Vancouver. Clayton Lamb, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.